The following podcast is part of the MindBodySpirit.fm podcast network. Human design is a system that offers profound insights into your inner self and how you interact with the world around you. Quantum human design takes that process one step further, allowing you to become the architect of your own reality. Join Dr. Karen Curry for Elevating Your Life Script, a weekend workshop where you transform your life by crafting intentional narratives, May 24th through 26th at the Omega Institute in Rhinebeck, New York. Learn more at eomega.org slash thrive. Welcome to Spirit Matters, where we explore matters of the spirit with leading experts from across the spiritual spectrum, all designed to enrich and enlarge your wisdom, deepen your joy and peace, and awaken your inner connection to the divine. Here's your host, Philip Goldberg. Greetings, everyone. Welcome to Spirit Matters 2.0. This is the reboot of 2.0 this is the reboot of the podcast i co-hosted with dennis ramundi for about seven years that iteration uh, has ended but the archive lives on so if you go to spiritmatterstalk.com and the youtube channel of the same name you'll find about 300 interviews with uh, extraordinary spiritual teachers and experts, and it's all free. Uh, and we will keep maintain that while I carry on in this new version, on this new platform, uh, continuing the, the tradition of having conversations with a diverse range of wise people who can help you along your own spiritual path and I'm very pleased that uh, today's wise person is Andrew Harvey. Andrew, as many of you know, is an internationally renowned scholar of religion and spirituality, a prolific writer and teacher, author of more than 30 books. He's taught at Oxford, at Cornell, and other institutes and is the founder and director of the Institute for Sacred Activism, an international organization dedicated to healing the planet. Uh, among his many books are his latest, which we'll get to talk about today, titled Radical Regeneration, Sacred Activism and the Renewal of the World, which he co-wrote with Carolyn Baker. Andrew, welcome. Thanks for coming on the show. Well, it's always lovely to be with you. I'm so thrilled that we can do this. So am I, and so will our audience be. Um, I want to get to uh, radical regeneration, but I have a question for you first, a more general question. From what I know of you, uh, your own spiritual path Lo, these, you know, half a century or whatever, has been very eclectic. You have ranged far and wide and have touched down quite deeply in many, if not all, of the world's mystical traditions, including Sufism, mystical Christianity, and of course, Hinduism, because uh, the land of your birth was India. Uh, 
I'd love to hear your take on this because um, that kind of eclecticism is kind of a hallmark of contemporary spirituality and the the tendency, the growing tendency of people to identify as spiritual but not religious and to non to be unaffiliated and to explore widely. There's always been a bit of a tension between exploration and commitment, between ranging far afield and having a spiritual home and uh, a root a nesting place. Those of us who have been around know there are benefits and potential pitfalls going in either direction. I'd love to hear your take on that. That's a wonderful question. I wouldn't say I've been eclectic. That's not the word that I would use. When I was 25, I returned to India for the first time for 10 years. I left India last saw India when I was 15. And those 10 years were very painful, very disillusioning. And I returned to India, not looking for anything, but simply to bathe in the stream of my childhood there, which was the foundation of my life and which I loved. And I had a series of overwhelming mystical experiences which catapulted me into a reality I had absolutely no idea existed. At the time, I was a professor at Oxford. I was a fellow of All Souls Oxford. What I realized is that I had to go on a major journey to find out what had happened to me and what was happening in me. Unfortunately, you know how these things work. Grace steps in to help the mad one. I came across Christopher Ishwood's book on Ramakrishna, where Ramakrishna said, God is a mother who cooks the food in different ways for different people. At which point I understood that I would learn the most about what was happening in me, to me, what I'd seen, what I'd experienced, not by just concentrating on one path, but by deeply tasting the different dishes of the cuisine by which the mother prepares the one for different temperaments. Because I have many different temperaments within myself. I have an intellectual which needs the purity and clarity of Buddhism. I have a very passionate heart which responds to Sufism and Christian mysticism and Hindu bhakti. And I have a passion to live in the fullness of the body, which opens me to the indigenous and the tantric traditions. So I very consciously went on a search into the major mystical traditions, not out of eclecticism, mm. but out of a desire to understand as far as I could from every conceivable angle, the realization that I knew with great gratitude was being given to me. And as I continued on that path, 
I came to understand that I was one of those people, and there are many of us on the planet at the moment, who are called to be midwives of a universal mysticism, of direct connection with the one beyond priests and gurus, but a direct connection fed by the different but deeply interlinked perspectives of all of the traditions so that that connection could become as vibrant, as ecstatic, as potent, and as embodied as possible. Because what I discovered on my journey was that the great liability of the patriarchal mystical systems They've done wonderful things and they have very important truths, but the liability is their inability to sanctify the body and creation, except in the secret tantric traditions. And it became more and more obvious to me, and this is where radical regeneration comes in with trumpets and violins, it became more and more obvious to me that what was required in our crisis was not a mysticism that stressed transcendence and told us how to get out of being here, but a mysticism that acknowledged the glory of the truths of transcendence, but used the experience of transcendence to marry the mind to the light, the heart to the light, and the body to the light, so that a new kind of human being could be born that could be strong enough and luminous enough and passionate enough and calm enough and irrigated by divine wisdom enough to be able to deal with this global dark night crisis that we are in. So I feel that what I've been doing in sometimes a very um, necessarily very stark and very ferocious way and very um, passionate way and very sometimes making very big mistakes <laughs> is in my own life trying to forge an evolutionary mysticism inspired by the great evolutionary mystics of humanity like Aurobindo and like my own teacher, Father Pete Griffiths, and of course by Kabir and Rumi, who've become the obsessions of my life. And that what I'm offering at this moment from this journey is the distillation of what I have learned on it and how that distillation can help people connect with the force of radical regeneration, the great evolutionary force that I identify with the mother, as all of the great evolutionary mystics have done, and that that is what my life's work is about. Does that make sense to you? Oh, absolutely. Me? And I'm... I, uh really want to have you uh, describe radical regeneration more deeply and spiritual activism. It's, uh, I admire what you're doing very much and, and I'm on board. I want to just quickly go back to- um, I agree with you. I want to just say one more thing. I absolutely love the, the richness with which you asked the question because if you go down one path, you can get stuck in the dogmas and in the subtle limitations of that path. 
we all know people who have been ravaged by the guru experience, for example, which I was too, and so many have, have been, I have needed to transcend. If you go on this kind of journey, you can risk getting dispersed and scattered and not concentrated enough. Right. So whichever you choose, the important thing is to be, if you choose the path of one way, be open to the great discoveries of the other paths. If you're going on the Hindu Bhakti path, be open to the great Christian mystics' understanding of Christ. Be open to the Buddhist understanding of Shunyata. Be open to the indigenous wisdom of interbeing. Be open and use your connection with those to deepen your devotion and expand it. If you're going on the very rich eclectic, what you call the eclectic path or the what I would call the exploratory path, the evolutionary path, be aware that unless you are intensely focused and devoted and disciplined, you will end your life knowing a lot about many things, but not realizing the essential truth of your incarnation. So, like all divine adventures, there are difficulties and shadows on both sides. Very good. Thank you. You said it better than I could and have. I've met, said basically the same thing many times. And I, you often invoke uh, Ramakrishna, since you mentioned yes. him earlier, who, who warned against uh, uh, looking for water by digging a lot of holes and never going deep enough to get the water. I was blessed because at first explosion dug the well. Then mm. I had to understand where the water was coming from. Mm. So Very I nice. was catapulted into a totally unfamiliar and rapturous and terrifying reality. And the well was dug. And then I had to understand where the different kinds of beautiful holy water were coming from. So th that isn't usually how it works with people. I, it, that, yeah. it, sometimes it works like that, but that was clearly part of my own life's mission. Very good. Um, Does that come... ring true to you? Does that make sense oh, to you? Totally, absolutely. You, you know, I'm, I've said similar things myself. You just have a way of saying it better. So I appreciate it very oh, much. That's not true. You are one of the most, <laughs> one of the writers that I love the most. I read you no. with great joy, your clarity and your wisdom and your balance, the marvelous way in which you keep so many seemingly contradictory perspectives in unity. That really is something I love about your work, really. Well, <laughs> this is why we invite you on the show, Andrew. Ah. Because you're very generous and appreciative. And I we thank you. Oh, for I'm that. not that I'm not I can be very fierce oh, too. Okay. You know that. Yeah. I know you can be fierce. So I all appreciate it even more. Let's talk about um how your work evolved. You you know, many uh your early work was scholarly and much of it was aimed at helping people grow spiritually and all that. You've been focusing on what you call spiritual activism. You started the Center for Spiritual well, Activism. Sacred activism, actually. Sacred activism. Spiritual sorry, activism yes, is too sorry. tofu for me. Yeah, no, no, no. 
Center for Sacred Activism, so sorry, mm -hmm. and um, and which ties in very much with the new book with Radical Regeneration. So here's a question. What was the realization for you that said, I have to put my considerable energy and passion into sacred activism? How did it begin? Why did you start the center? Well, let me just reframe how you introduced it a little, because my early work was not scholarly. My early work was visionary, impassioned, ecstatic. <clears throat> Journey in Ladakh was a rapturous account of my awakening to Mayana Buddhism. The early translations of Rumi were the ways in which I tried to give back the astonishment that I experienced in encountering Rumi. Hidden Journey was a very naked, stark account of the waking up to divine identity, very personal. So what happened? That was the first period. The second period began with an appalling dark night experience brought on by being betrayed by my guru, by being told that there was no place for gay people in the kingdom, queendom of the mother. And, and Andrew, let me, earlier you referred to Father Bede as your guru. You do not mean Father Bede in this. Oh, no, I wouldn't. So I, I, I just want to clarify that guru. for listeners. I really don't think of him as my guru. Ah, okay. I think of him as something far more important as my beloved. And I make the distinction because I think it's a very important yeah. one. The guru always remains above. The beloved melts into you and becomes you as you become him or her. So this terrible dark night followed, which was absolutely awful. I was denounced, derided. There were bombs thrown through the windows of where my, where I and my husband lived. There was black magic. There was everything. I've written about it in Sun at Midnight. And that was the crucial experience because mm -hmm. it dissolved my fantasy that I could be saved by anything but my own deepest self and by my own relationship with the divine. And that fantasy was very difficult to get rid of. It had to be burned and seared away. And I nearly died many, many times during that experience. But looking back, I bless it as the great radical transformation of my life. And also I bless it because it gives me direct clarity about what we are going through right now, which is a global dark night in mm. which everything that I had to suffer and learn in my dark night is now being open to everyone. We're all going through it. Then what happened is the experience that always ends the dark night, as you know, when if, I know you've read accounts of dark nights and the classical accounts in Christianity and in Judaism and in Islam and in shamanic literature, they all know this passage. The dark night always ends with an overwhelming vision of the beloved and your own deep identity with what you are seeing. That's the reward for having gone through all the excruciation and the horror and the madness and the 
absolute despair and the paralysis and the heartbreak. And what happened to me was that my father was dying in Coimbatore, where I was born. And I adored my father. He was the most wonderful human being. He, I don't know how he put up with me, but he did with the most extraordinary courtesy and grace. And of course, I flew to Coimbatore from San Francisco, where I was living, to be with him because I wanted to thank him for everything that he'd been to me and given to me, and also because I wanted to give him whatever comfort I could. So I arrived in Coimbatore on a Tuesday, and then on the Sunday, I went to church in a church called Christ the King. And it was a church I'd been a page boy in when I was seven years old, at the marriage of my aunt and uncle, and I couldn't stand my uncle. So I slid down the banisters the day before and made my the back of my satin uniform red. So I had to spend the entire service um, standing away from the audience so they couldn't see my red. So I was amused at going to the church, but something absolutely life-changing happened to me in that church that day. Um, how can I explain this? Um, what happened is that I saw the statue of the resurrected Christ in the church after an amazing sermon come alive. Mm. I saw the beloved as the Christ, and he was there, the resurrected one. And out of his heart towards me came this lava flow of enormous mind-shattering, heart-shattering passion, like a golden stream of lava. And it seemed to take a knife and stab my heart, and out of my heart, back to his heart, beloved's heart, there streamed an answering, much smaller, but same substance. So love, lover and beloved became one in that overwhelming experience of force of bliss. Then... I staggered out of the church because I was sitting next to my brother, who is a multimillionaire banker who would not <laughs> really get what I'm on about. So I staggered out, and then the second half of the experience happened, and that was what worst sacred activism. I saw a legless, an armless man in a puddle, a young man, of extraordinary beauty and extraordinary spiritual anguish, just agony. And I went up to him and embraced him and lifted him from the puddle and got the people who are around to take him to a place and gave him the money that I had on me. But as I did so, I heard a voice and I know it was the voice of the beloved and in my case of the Christ. And it said, you've been playing with light. You've used all these great experiences and these great teachings that you've been given to decorate your own ego. Don't you realize that the world is now in apocalyptic danger? When you gaze into the eyes of this man, understand that behind him are millions, if not billions of people living in atrocious circumstances. Realize that the forests are burning, the animals are threatened. Realize that the world has really reached a moment in which humanity will have to rise up in divine strength and sacred action to do something real right now. 
And the voice continued, and it was lacerating beyond belief. And it said, when you cross over, Andrew, you will not be asked how many brilliant books you gave or how many eloquent talks you gave. That won't matter at all. You will be asked one question and one question only. You'll be asked, what did you do while the world was what did you care enough about to risk your reputation, to risk your status and prestige, to stand up to say in defense of the creation and of the human beings who are now suffering so atrociously? As you can imagine, after that experience, I mm. felt completely flayed. But... Over the months that followed, I realized I'd been given a stupendous grace and that it had signaled the end of my dark night because mm. I remember Teresa saying, this is what happens and Rumi saying, and that it had begun a wholly new life in which I would have to claim that my divine realization and realize that I'd been born by grace into another level of my true self and that I would have to dedicate that to birthing a vision of sacred activism in honor of the experience that I'd been given, because the experience itself had revealed to me two things. Had revealed to me first, there was this stupendous evolutionary love power the core of God that truly could transform everything that is the power that is radical regeneration that is blazing in the illumined mind, blazing in the open sacred heart, blazing in the core of the body and of nature. It's a unified force field of living, transfiguring fire. And it is love. So I realized that because I'd felt it because I'd been overwhelmed by it. But, I also realized that that force is demanding that we use it not for our private liberation, not simply to have that astounding, gorgeous experience, which is unforgettable, which is still resonating in every cell of my being. I, I feel it every day. It's changed everything. But to put that energy, that wisdom, that passion, that illumination into wise, clear, urgent, guided action, because it's not enough to feel love. You have to be love and you have to act love. Love is a noun and a verb. And that gave me the foundation from which I then went out to really give the map of sacred activism. And it was a very painful choice because I knew perfectly well that to stand up in the middle of the coma of the new age and ask people to really face the agony of what the world was going on would not win me many friends and it didn't. And I realized too that really begging people to overcome the tragic narcissism of what has passed for mysticism, both in the patriarchal traditions and in the New Age, 
was to confront one of the bitterest and cruelest shadows in human nature. And I was humiliated and derided and shouted at and called on fraud and all of that. And I knew that was coming. I knew I would have to embrace that just as my just as the Christ had embraced it, and just as all those who stand up for the truth of love in action have to face a great deal of opposition because it's the birthing force of a new humanity. And if you're going to try to represent it, you're going to meet all the forces that don't want that birth to take place. But I'm an Englishman, and my father <laughs> taught me as a child that the greatest human being who'd ever been born was Churchill. So I decided ah. to follow Churchill. And I decided that, well, if it was going to be very rugged and difficult, Winston had put up with being derided for 10 years, announcing the threat of Nazism, so I could face a bit if I had some Winstonian <laughs> guts. And I've, through grace, I found that guts, and I was able to birth a map for sacred activism, and now sacred activism is a global phenomenon. The words have become universal. People are realizing thousands and thousands, hundreds of thousands of people are waking up to the necessity of fusing together deep spiritual understanding and stamina and force and passion with wise guided urgent action because more and more people are being aware that we're in an extinction crisis and that we need to act. And more and more people are being aware of something even more astonishing, which is the theme of radical regeneration, as you know, which is that it's not just that we have to act, but that if we can act from a sacred center, from a sacred love and a sacred passion, from that force that irrigated me and Quine Bator, which is available to everyone, if we can act from that, we'll do something much more than act. We'll birth ourselves into the next level of our evolutionary destiny and become an embodied divine humanity which could work with the divine directly to co-create a wholly new way of being and doing everything. So first I birthed sacred activism and then I plunged into, after birthing sacred activism, the legacy of my great teacher, Father Pete Griffiths, who had told me that this time would be the time of the birth of divine humanity because he was himself going through a transfiguration process, not just a transformation, but a transfiguration of mind and heart and body which was astonishing him, but which gave him the key to the evolutionary map of humanity, which he shared with me. And after I birthed sacred activism, I realized that I needed myself to plunge into that mystery. So for the last 15 years, as well as keeping sacred activism alive, I have myself done a wholly different set of practices and have plunged into translating Kabir, who's one is the greatest prophet of this engoldenment transmutation process, and into translating Angelus Silesius, who's the great Christian mystic, and Hadovich of Antwerp, and the others who show us the way. And then I realized 
that, oh my God, what we're being asked to do, and this is so amazing and so difficult, so potentially transformatory, is to combine working humbly with that transfiguration stream that's coming to us from the mother, which Aurobindo called the supramental light. Aurobindo's the great Plato of this process. And simultaneously with that also being sacred activists and how it works is that the more you are given through this radical transmutation process the more you're given of energy of insight of lucidity of passion of force of compassion of joy the more responsible you are to put all of those powers into action so they work together to birth a new humanity and that is what radical regeneration is about human design is a system that offers profound insights into your inner self and how you interact with the world around you quantum human design takes that process one step further allowing you to become the architect of your own reality. Join Dr. Karen Curry for Elevating Your Life Script, a weekend workshop where you transform your life by crafting intentional narratives, May 24th through 26th at the Omega Institute in Rhinebeck, New York. Learn more at eomega.org slash thrive. That's fabulous, Andrew. Um, Let me, uh, I have many questions. But I want to anticipate uh, in my huge, huge. This is an original formulation that Carolyn and I have brought together because the old, most of the old evolutionary mystics realized that transfiguration was possible and it's the secret dream of God to birth an embodied divine humanity. But in order to pursue it, they very often retreated Mm. from the world because it's so difficult and so you had to seal yourself off in a kind of alchemical cocoon and work on it like Aurobindo did in those 30 years in his room but now we've come to a crisis where that's no longer possible because we just don't have the time but the amazing thing is that you discover Phil and I know you know this is that because of the intensity of the danger there is a matching overabundance, superabundance of grace coming down to speed this process up because the mother, the mother side of God has decided that humanity will either die out if it continues to do this crazy stuff that it's doing or undergo a dark night process to be born into this possibility. And the time for all of that is now. And is giving us both the horrendous crisis that necessitates this great transformation and the torrential grace of golden light that makes transmutation and a new kind of sacred activism possible. How amazing. Let me, um, when I speak to people about the importance of um, spiritual, deep spiritual people, sincere spiritual people, uh, being engaged in the world, my own little version of sacred activism. Nothing I hear your version of anything, Phil. Please don't. <laughs> no, come on. Okay, fair enough. I hear uh, the kind of opposition or um, uh, backlash that you anticipated and probably have experienced. So, 
Oh, yes. For the people <laughs> listening now who are having such thoughts, I want to throw a few things out and have you address them. There are people who say, I don't want to focus on this dark stuff. I'm all about spirituality. This is all Maya. It's all illusion. It's all just, you know, passing images on the screen of consciousness. I want to focus on my on the light. I don't want to be brought down by the darkness. So leave me alone. What do you say to those people? First thing I say is I get it. I understand. What we're being invited to do, compelled to do, is in the beginning absolutely overwhelming. So that's the first thing I say because it's disarming. The second thing I say is if you look at the mystical philosophies that you're deriving that vision from, you will, if you explore them detachedly and clearly, understand that they are in fact proclaiming a half-truth as a full truth. Hmm. And that proclamation of a half-truth, which is that the ultimate reality is the eternal shattering light out of which all things are created. If you take that as the full truth, what it will lead to is not complete enlightenment, but actually a very subtle and very dangerous form of radical dissociation, which will separate you from the really extraordinary awakening that has never been better expressed than by Kabir when he said in five lines, I beg you to think about this, my friends, if you're thinking along these lines, my father is the absolute Godhead, and my mother is the embodied Godhead. I am that divine child dancing for them both mm, on nice. their burning dance floor. <laughs> so if you use your realization to sign off from reality from politics, from economics, from the agony of the poor, from the desperate genocide of the animals, from this dark night that we're going through, you may end up in what you imagine to be peace, but you will never have the great bliss of the unity in you of transcendence and eminence, father and mother, and you will never experience the tremendous joy that is only given to those who act as God's secret agents of justice in a burning world. And I beg you not to limit the possibilities of your extraordinary journey, because you're noble people, you've gone on this journey, but there is so much more available to those who are brave enough to let themselves feel what's happening and wise enough to use the powers that their realization gives them to make them strong enough to be beacons of radical encouragement and passionate joy and real humble service to others so that the world can come together and build a new reality. This world is not 
Maya. And Maya is Maya. Maya <laughs> is the manifestation of God. The world is the manifestation of God. It's not the ultimate, but it is real. And Very good. It is sacred. So get down with it. Oh, very good. And what about people who say... You like that reply? Was that a strong enough reply for you? Was you oh, yes. You Thank and you. I have talked about this so many times. And with Because it's something that we both care passionately about, to try and help people out of a vision that actually limits them. If you really think that this body is just Maya, our conversation is just Maya, the agony of the elephants is just Maya. If you really think that Trump is just Maya, <laughs> you are out of your mind. You're not relating. You're dissociated. You're not wise. You're not awake. You're dissociated. And you're in denial. And you're in denial. Yeah. And that cannot help you. That will right. only limit your realization. Yeah. And, and you're um, ignoring or rejecting the humanness because yes, you're human that's, that's that you've just stuck on something so important because i think what you and i have discovered for ourselves in different ways but in very interlinked ways is something really astonishing when you really come towards it and that is that you're never more divine than when you are most authentically human because when you're most authentically human, you're loving, you're compassionate, you're playful, you're generous, you're magnanimous, and you long to help your fellow human beings and animals and plants and the creation. What's more divine than that? And, and that opens up to the revelation behind radical regeneration, which is that in the very core of the human is the divine. So let's get back to being human beings, authentic human beings, reacting from compassion and acting with divine guidance together to recreate everything. And, and our most revered spiritual role models were not... We wouldn't know about them if they just retired into cages, into caves. They, they came out to serve. They took their realization into the world. Christ did, Buddha did, they all did. That's why we revere them. They gave us and the prophet. Let's, let's be frank enough to just bow down before the prophet, peace be upon me. He was the most mm -hmm. overwhelmingly brave and complete being, incredible service to others all his life. The real ones have always been like that. And we're being challenged to become real ones too. So what do you say to the person who says, I hear you, Andrew, I'm with you. We're in a terrible global crisis. The problems are so big. And I'm so small. I have no influence. I, I'm not a, a, a major figure who can have a, a platform and be heard. So what can I do? Why? Why? What futile? It seems so futile. What do you say to people who who um, take that position? Then I say I get it, because part of the hallucination, the real Maya 
is the way in which people who aren't wealthy, who aren't powerful, who aren't beautiful, who aren't young, feel completely inadequate because we live in a culture that has entirely forgotten the sacred dignity of humanity and worships utterly degraded and false values. Then I say, you radically underestimate yourself. You say you are small and nothing. You are a living divine hologram of the entire cosmos. And don't believe me. Believe every awake mystic of every single tradition, all of whom have proclaimed in different but totally mutually interrelated ways that the great secret that every human being carries in the core of themselves is that they are both that and this. At Twamazi, you are that, but you're also, if you follow which is what I do, you're also the embodied mother as well. So you're the utterly transcendent and you're everything that has been created out of the transcendent, all the realms and all the universes. And if you don't believe me, well, just try the practices and devote yourself and amazing things will be revealed to you, at which point you will understand that you are not small, you're not unempowered, you're phenomenally empowered, you are divine. And when you do understand that, because you feel it and you know it and it's been revealed to you, then you get chutzpah. <laughs> and chutzpah can do amazing things, especially when it's blessed by divine power. I give, And then I tell a story. And I, this is one of my favorite stories that I don't think I've ever told you because it's, it, there was a housewife in Minnesota. She was in her 50s and she lived in a nice little Minnesota town and she was happy and her children were at university and she had a nice husband. And one day she saw a program which revealed to her that the cheetahs of Namibia were dying. They were mm. being destroyed. They were down to the last 200. For some reason, this completely agonized her. And this housewife decided, without knowing anything about cheetahs and without having any money, that she would herself go to Namibia and she would do everything she could to save the cheetahs. Hmm. Well, she did. And she went, and by sheer force of personality and passion and joy and deep, deep, agonized compassion. She raised the money, and to cut a long story short, there are now 4,000 cheetahs mm. because of what one so-called ordinary person did out of burning compassion. That's beautiful. So I never buy anybody's statement about I'm too small, I'm too impotent, because I, in the course of the last 20 years, have met not only few of people like her, I've met thousands of so-called ordinary people that have just dived deep into their divine identity and said, what? the heaven, I'm going to go out and give everything and let's just see what happens and amazing things do because the divine blesses those people. Andrew, 
radical Does that strike you as a good reply? Is absolutely. That, absolutely, I'm going to steal it. Um, and and one of those one of those people, I should say, is the is the person you dedicate uh, radical regeneration to, Greta Thunberg. Greta Thunberg. <laughs> Unbelievable. Seventeen year old girl goes and sits outside, and she just and she's autistic, and she just says, "No, this is not to stop. I'm going to be the first. And then she's now the most important spiritual teacher on the planet with the Dalai Lama. Good ever have forecast that everything she says is truth and she says it with the kind of fearlessness and the kind of depth of love and concern that make all guys like myself ashamed <laughs> i'm ashamed when i listen to her that i'm not more here more forceful more adamantine but i'm not so ashamed that I can't just fall at her feet and say thank you so much and do everything I can to emulate what she's doing and follow her wisdom. There's an incredible example of somebody who would yeah. be dismissed. And Radical Regeneration, the book. The book. Uh, it has four parts, yeah, each of which is kind of a book of its own. Um, it's, a full, it, it's a symphony. Mm. Let's. I'd like to give the readers a taste of uh, each of the four parts. If you would tell us what's in each of those parts in succession. The first is called Savage Grace. Why and what? what is the substance of that? Oh, no, we lost your sound. Book. I'd, no, I'd love to try this. This is like that wonderful... Um, game that Monty Python played, you know, <laughs> summarize Proust in a minute, which is one of my favorite. And they did. He did manage to summarize Proust in a minute. Um, let me just explain how radical regeneration was created. Please. Okay. Six years ago, I rang my great friend Carolyn Baker up and I said, look, we're clearly headed with the election of you know who, into absolutely devastating territory. And it's going to be appalling, dreadful beyond belief. And we're going to be taken to the edge by this maniac and also by climate change and all the other things that are happening. What I believe we should do is to melt our two kinds of wisdom and voices together so that we can melt my sort of roomified exaltation into your down-home groundedness, and between the two of us, we can birth a child together that will really help people. And then we decided that the first thing that we would do is write a book about joy, because everybody would always accuse both of us of being doom merchants, whereas in <laughs> fact, we are both the most joyful people we know. I, I live in joy. I have a lot of heartbreak, but my deepest energy is joy day in day out i am aflame with love of life and so is she so we decided to just say to everybody because you don't like what we've been saying you've made us into miseries but actually we're aligned with the regenerative force of joy and that's what keeps us going and gives us the spot to keep keep trying to wake people up so we wrote this book on joy and then we wrote Savage Grace. Savage Grace is now the first, but we follow it with joy. 
Savage Grace just dives deep into the central paradox of our global dark night and the paradox of every dark night. Now it's a global dark night. The paradox of every dark night is that it is the most atrocious, obscene, horrific experience you could ever have, and you can't even imagine it until you're in it. But that it's also the birth canal of a wholly new level of evolutionary truth and power and beauty and passion. And I've lived through a dark night, and that has happened to me, and so has Karen. And there are many of us who've done that on the earth. And we explore that paradox, not just in terms of the personal mystical journey, but in terms of the great mystical event that is this eruption of a whole series of interconnected crises, COVID, the animal genocide, tragic, obscene inequality between the rich and the poor, the fatality of a, an addicted capitalism, the bankruptcy of the so-called spiritual world, all of them together. And we make clear that this is not sign of despair. It's a sign of monumental possibility. It's a savage grace, just as the personal dark night is, because it's signaling that one kind of humanity is over. And if it can, if humanity continues to choose that identity, it will engineer its own extinction very, very soon. And environmentalists agree. Ev everyone who's awake knows that now. What the mystic evolutionaries bring in is the knowledge that it's only when things get that unspeakably agonizing and severe that you find the courage in yourself to dig deeper than you ever imagined you could dig and so discover the divine wellsprings of transfiguration within you through grace. So that's savage grace. Then we turn to joy, the return to joy, because one of the things that both Carolyn and I have discovered, which is not unique to us, it's the truth that Aurobindo says in one of his last letters. He says, the work cannot be done except through radical joy. Only connection with the ananda, the great bliss force that I experienced in Kuiper the great regenerative ananda, that is the creative force of everything, the secret essential nature of the divine. Only by connecting to that can you stand the process that you are now called to go through. So we celebrate all the different forms of joy and help people get into the kind of interconnected living that enables you to draw joy from sacred inspiration, from your relationships to animals, from sacred friendship, from deep inner practice, all the forms of joy which Rumi identifies of identifies as the rays of a secret sun, a secret sun that shows you all these ways to reconnect and unify your being. Then the third part addresses Karen's and my deep agony and also possibility. And that is that we are now in, have created an Auschwitz for the animals. And we're in the process of eliminating a million species and 
killing even more and it's unspeakable and horrific and it is awakening a tsunami of black karma coming towards us. But what we wanted to do is to not just go into all of that, which is frightening enough to wake people up, but to really explore why. Why are we torturing the animals? And what we discovered, I think, which makes this book original, is that the reason why we are torturing the animals is because we're torturing the animal in us. Mm. We haven't been able to embrace ourselves as animals, and we haven't been able for for several millennia to bless the divine animal within Mm. us. Mm. And there can be no force of radical regeneration without fusion between the illumined mind, the open heart, and the animal divine that is in our bodies. Mm. So this book, which begins as an exploration of horror, opens up to the immense possibility of a new relationship with the creation and with animals that restores us to the fullness of ourselves so that we can enter the living force field of regeneration. Then, in the fourth part, we really plunge into all of the different kinds of meanings of radical regeneration. What is this force? And fundamentally, we say two things which are interlinked. This force is that bliss force that is capable of transmuting us into a new embodied divine humanity. This force has been known at the heart of the Kabbalah. It's been known and lived out by Christ in the resurrection. It's been lived out and known by the great Christian mystics who were transfigured. It's been lived and known by the great Vajrayana mystics who worked with the rainbow body and achieved extraordinary powers of transfiguration. It's been lived and known by the Shaivites. It's been lived and known at the secret core of Taoist alchemy. It's been lived and known by, of course, Aurobindo, who really nailed it, if you like, as the descending grace of the supramental light destined to transfigure humanity. That was his great discovery and great condensation and crystallization of all these forms of knowledge. That's one stream. And the second stream is sacred activism. That the more you can enter this evolutionary stream, the more power you have, the more joy you have, the more energy you have, the more courage you have. And you can dedicate, in fact, you must dedicate, we believe, all of those powers to encouraging people to come together in a massive non-violent love revolution that says a very insistent no to all the structures of cold evil and a very passionate yes to justice for all sentient beings and the creation on earth of an egalitarian, harmonious, balanced, profoundly generous and magnanimous and inclusive society. What a wonderful way to end, unfortunately, uh, because we could go on for hours, but Thank you for ending this on this upbeat and um, hopeful note. 
I, oh, I don't like the word yes. hope, hopeful. This, oh, I love it. I it's think a this vision. Is the most stunningly hopeful vision because yes. this really, and it's a hope that doesn't deny despair, doesn't deny horror. It's a hope that sees that horror contains the seeds of something unimaginably amazing. Those people who choose only to live in the light have no idea of what Nicholas of Cusa means when he says God is a coincidence of opposites. Mm. Unless you face the dark, you never get to the joy that you will realize when you realize that the dark is actually under the control of the divine and the divine is using sometimes the most devastating darkness to create an unimaginably beautiful and holy opportunity. And that is the most thrilling discovery on the mystical path. Thank you, Andrew. Thank you for being with us. Thank you for all the great work you're doing. And listeners, um, I hope you pay close attention to what Andrew has to say. It's all in our hands. And there's no time for despair. Or if you're in despair, snap out of it and let's all do something about the conditions and uh, take sacred activism seriously as our uh, collective responsibility. Thank you for listening. Please uh, subscribe to the show. Tell your friends about it. Go to my website, philipgoldberg.com. Email me with your suggestions and your criticisms <laughs> and your feedback. Um, and uh, subscribe to my mailing list and listen to the subsequent uh, conversations we'll be having with people wise and wonderful like uh, today's guest, Andrew Harvey. Andrew, thanks so much. It's my dear friends, by radical regeneration. Yes. And see for yourself how inspiring this vision that we've been given to give to you can be. It's the distillation of 50 years search in a book that is user friendly and is really, we spent five years getting it as clear and as clean and as useful because we knew that the time would come when it could work as a manual for everyone if who was open to it. So please plunge in. Do that. And if you want to know more about Andrew, go to andrewharvey.net and you'll learn about him and sacred activism by the book. Do what you can. Thank you all. See you next time. If you're inspired by the teachings of Dr. Wayne Dyer, you will love the Change Your Thoughts, Change Your Life podcast with Nadia Dela Cruz. You are a spiritual being having a human experience. My name is Nadia Dela Cruz, and I started the Change Your Thoughts, Change Your Life podcast to explore spiritual topics like manifestation and meditation with guests who share their own stories of insight, awakening, and transformation. Listen now on the mindbodyspirit.fm podcast network or wherever you get your podcasts.